Our Father, we come to you. This is one of the weeks where um, it's one of these weeks that these are happening more and more often, obviously. Um, Life, normal life, suddenly interrupted. Another... uh, Another bomb in an airport, one in a subway, another one somewhere else. This is becoming uh, the course of life. And uh, it is, um, it's one of these things that just causes us to, to stop and say, what in the world is going on? What, what has happened? What, and, uh, and then we've got to get on a plane. And it just causes us again to think, wait a minute. And then wives get concerned. Well, should you really make this trip? And then we, it's just how life is right now. It is absolutely in chaos. It's absolute anarchy. Yet, we know you were there. We know that uh, your throne is in the heavens. Your sovereignty rules over all. We should not be surprised at what we're seeing. In Matthew 24, you told us that in the last days, there will be wars and there will be rumors of wars. Well, we've got that. Maybe a different kind of war But these are wars, and it unsettles us, and it it saddens us, it troubles us. We have a a real sense it's coming our way. We know it's coming our way. We, We would be fools to not think that. Just as the people of Britain in World War II, knew something was coming their way. And when those bombers started flying over every night, it was there and it was real. And they did not know what was going to happen that night. They just knew something was going to happen. We are not the first to live in troubling times. Uh, there have always been wars. There have always been conflicts. But in the midst of it, you are in charge, and so often it looks like you're not in charge, but you are. This is what happens when a world turns from you. You did not make this world to be like this. But a human being thought they knew better than you. And they thought that they could go their own way and make a choice contrary to what you clearly said, and it would be all right. And that's never all right. And at that moment, sin entered into the world through Adam and Eve, and it has been around ever since. Uh, And even with their own sons, war broke out and one murdered another. Now, this is the human dilemma. But we are thankful for the gospel 
And we, we are thankful that when things look out of control, they're actually under control and that you are taking history somewhere. You have a plan for our lives. You have a plan for the nations. This is not just random stuff. You, you are sitting above the earth and you are in charge and you are working your sovereign plan. So we say tonight that we trust in you. Our times are in your hand. We, we, we pray that this turmoil, this fear would turn people to look at you, to take stock of their lives and to evaluate. And the things that they trust in, they would begin to realize that they're feeble. Everybody trusts in something or someone, but it only makes sense to trust in you, the living God. You forgive us of our sins, you give us life, you enclose us behind and before, and you sustain us through life, through the good and the bad. And when we die, our lives do not end. Thank you that history is going somewhere. Thank you that Jesus is coming back one day and that everything will be made right. And as it was in the garden, so it will be again and even better. There'll be a new heaven. There'll be a new earth. There'll be a new Jerusalem. We look forward to that because of what Christ has done. And in the interim, you will walk us through every day. This is our hope. It is the truth. Our hearts are at rest. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So tonight we are in Ecclesiastes 9. As I'm on this new platform. This thing is... Uh, 18 feet high. I feel like I'm on the walls of uh, uh, Babylon. We'll get used to it. Um, either that or we'll change it. We'll, we'll see. But enough of that. Let's go to Ecclesiastes 9. Because in Ecclesiastes 9, um, we, we are back to some subjects that Solomon has already covered. Now, this should not surprise you. Because we talked about the fact that there are certain themes and there are certain concepts that Solomon hits. And then he'll go on something else and he'll go off to something else. But then he'll switch back and come back to these same themes. And it, it seems like it is somewhat uh, um, random, but it's not. There's a methodology to it. There is a purpose. I was... Uh, my, my niece is in town with her husband and her kids, and we were talking the other day, and she asked me, so what are you teaching in your Bible study? And I said, Ecclesiastes. And she said, wow, I've never understood that book. And uh, I said, it's a tough book. It takes a little, it takes a little, there's, you've got to find kind of the code to crack the thing. And uh, we were just talking about Ecclesiastes. Uh, in light of that, let, let me read something to you from an Old Testament scholar named Gleason Archer. Because what he does is, uh, in just a paragraph, and this is a good summary as we kick into Ecclesiastes 9, he, he talks about the whole purpose of the book. And some of this is going to sound familiar. If you're new, it'll give you an introduction to Ecclesiastes, because this is an unusual book in the Bible. 
the, the methodology is a little bit different. So Archer says this, the purpose of Ecclesiastes was to convince men of the uselessness of any worldview which does not rise above the horizon of man himself. That's a great statement. Because as we go through Ecclesiastes, there is this phrase that occurs 20-some times, under the sun, under the sun, under the sun. This is the man who lives life with only an earthly perspective, without taking God into consideration either ignores God or doesn't believe that God exists. Now, that is an increasingly number of people in our age and in our society. So, once again, Archer, the purpose of Ecclesiastes was to convince men of the uselessness, of the futility of any worldview which does not rise above the horizon of man himself. It pronounces the verdict of vanity of vanities, or emptiness of emptiness upon any philosophy of life which regards the created world or human enjoyment as an end in itself. Everybody's after pleasure. Everybody's after the good life. Everybody is after better. Everybody's after personal peace and happiness. That's one reason he wrote the book. And by the way, well, that's nothing new. It's always been that case. To view personal happiness, Archer says, as the highest good in life is sheer folly in view of the preeminent value of God himself as over against his created universe. Why would you value what God has created over the one who has created it? That's insane. Nor can happiness ever be attained by pursuing after it, since such a pursuit involves the foolishness of self-deification, of making yourself God. Well, gosh, you got an entire movement that is based on making yourself God, the New Age movement. But even if you're not in the New Age movement, we all tend to make ourselves little gods. Uh, it seems to me, in American culture, you know, we don't, uh, people don't bow down really in worship idols anymore in our country. Well, we have other religions coming in, and they do that. But historically, in America, you didn't have people bowing down and worship, worshiping images. But, uh, oh, we have our idols. Now, some, some people wash and wax their idols. Uh, some people uh, spend massive amounts of tuition for their idols. Kids can become idols. Houses can become idols. Uh, it seems to me, though, in America, the most popular idol is the idol of self, self-deification. We're into self-realization. We're into self-actualization. We're into self-fulfillment. We're into self-understanding. We're into self. Uh, we tend to be our own gods. Having shown the vanity of living for worldly goals, the author clears the way for a truly adequate worldview which recognizes God himself as the highest value of all, and the meaningful life as the one, watch this, which is lived in his service. In his service. Not serving me, but serving him by serving others. Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He said, you shall love the Lord your God, your 
the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. And the second is the same as the first, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. We love God, the God who came to serve us by dying on the cross. And because of what he has done for us, because we love him, we love others. Two highest commandments. Only as, an, only as a vehicle for the expression of divine wisdom, goodness, and truth does the world itself possess any real significance. It is only God's work that endures. Boy, you can fly right over that, but that's the absolute truth. What endures in life? What endures for eternity? Only the work of God. Everything else will pass away. Everything else will be burned up with fire. It is only God works, God's work that endures, and only he can impart ab abiding value to the life and activity of man. And he closes this paragraph by quoting Ecclesiastes 3, 14, which says, I know that whatsoever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be put to it, nor anything taken from it. It's kind of an overview of the book of Ecclesiastes. Tonight we're in Ecclesiastes 9. Uh, the little title I've written on my notes is Ecclesiastes 9, A Balanced Approach to Insanity. Because we're living in an insane world. In fact, he says we're living in an insane world, and it's in the opening verses, and he said it 3,000 years ago. It was insane back then, and it's insane now. Uh, in Ecclesiastes 9, I, I see two main big ideas. Let me go ahead and give them to you. The first big idea is in verses 1 through 6, Ecclesiastes 9, 1 through 6, and I would call this section uh, confront the brutal facts. Confront the brutal facts. Um, that uh, if you read Jim Collins' book, Good to Great, the, the business book, which is really a tremendous book, uh, been on the bestseller list for years and years and years. Uh, good to great, he looked at companies that were good, doing, had a good history and were doing well, but uh, had kind of, you know, peaked and uh, not what they once were, but they weren't at bottom, they were just kind of in the middle. They were good, but they weren't great. And he observed these companies, and then there were certain companies that had gone from good to great. And he and his team analyzed, and they came up with five or six different key principles. Interestingly enough, the key principles they came up with, I think you can make a case that every one of them were biblical principles. But he wasn't writing from a biblical perspective. One of the principles that he said is that when you're analyzing a company, when you're analyzing your situation, when you're evaluating, what you've got to do is you've got to confront the brutal facts. And, 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 you know, isn't that interesting? We, we had these terrorist attacks in uh, Brussels. And there, there are certain, there, there, there's a certain type of person who tends to live under the sun who is shocked by this. They're stunned. Why are they doing this to us? Well, yeah, they're evil. And there's evil in the world. But see, they don't think that's hard for them to get their arms around because they live life under the sun. I mean, 
God has told us in his word. This stuff goes way, way back. This stuff goes back to two brothers, half-brothers. This goes back to Abraham. Uh, this goes back to a man trying to help out God. God had made him a promise that he was going to have a son, Abraham. And he's getting on up in years. And uh, it got to a point where, and, and his wife, you know, had been made, given the promise. But, they, they, I mean, they were well past the childbearing age. I mean, well past it. Uh, he couldn't go online and get any specific supplement. Uh, so, I mean, I mean it, it was a done deal. There was no way they were going to have kids. So it was the practice that a man could go into uh, a maiden, the handmaiden, a servant. So he did. He was going to help God out. Had a child. Uh, Ishmael. But Ishmael was not the child of promise. You see? God doesn't need any help fulfilling his word. God doesn't need any help. I had a guy this week, he's very concerned about a father who's getting up in years and uh, his health is declining. He's trying to share the gospel with him. Uh, he's made a number of attempts. The most recent one, he told him, basically cussed him out, told him to leave him alone. Um, I don't want to hear this again. Don't ever bring it up. And he was asking me, so what do you think I should do? I said, I think you ought to honor his wishes. That's what you should do. Yeah, but I really, I, I said, no, you want him to come to Christ. He said, absolutely. I said, you're not the Holy Spirit. You can't bring him to Christ. There's not a thing you can do. In fact, if you keep doing what you're doing, you're going to harden him. When you hang out with him, what does he like to talk about? He likes baseball. I said, talk baseball. Don't talk Bible. Talk baseball. Just hang out with him and love him. But at the same time, put him in the hands of God and ask the Holy Spirit to go to work on him. And you might even ask the Holy Spirit to make his life more difficult and more miserable in order to get his attention because what has occurred hasn't done it. But you can't do it. God doesn't need help. We're always thinking God needs help. We're always thinking, and we can be we know we're not the Holy Spirit, but we kind of think we could be junior Holy Spirits <laughs> and get a little badge and we join the junior Holy Spirit Club. And we run around helping God out and God made a promise, okay, so I'll have sex with this other woman and we'll have a child of promise, sort of. No, that's not the boy. So when he's 100 and his wife's 90, that's when they have the little baby. Is that wild or what? Yeah. That's where this whole thing that we're dealing with right now on the news, terrorist attack, all this, this is where it all comes from. Okay. Uh, but there are people, even as the bombings occurring and all this, they don't want to confront the brutal facts. They do not even want to say certain words. They do not even want to, they won't do it. They will not confront brutal facts. Okay. But if you're going to, uh, let, let me tell you something. The thing, you know, you know why Ecclesiastes is so difficult? Because throughout the book, he's confronting brutal facts. Man, I read that chapter. That is a downer. Yeah, it is. And what we're going to read here in a minute is a downer. Uh, uh, evil is in your heart, and you're going to die. Well, that doesn't sell a lot of books. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's not... Um, 
Yeah. But it's true. It's true. Now, there's more to the story than that. Okay. So the first section, chapters 9, 1 through 6, you confront the brutal facts, and he's going to do that. And then the second major section is chapter 9, verses 7 through 10, embrace the remarkable mercy. First you confront the brutal facts, then you embrace the remarkable mercy. Years and years ago, someone asked Francis Schaeffer if he had an hour in a plane to explain to someone who had never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, they asked him, well, how would you approach that? He said, I would spend 45 to 50 minutes telling them the bad news. Uh, I, would, I would try to show them their, their absolute hopelessness without Christ, that they are dead in their trespasses and sins, they're only dead, they're blind, they cannot change their condition. On their own, they can never merit enough good works to be forgiven by God. He, and, and his point was, we're too fast to give the good news. If people don't understand the bad news, they're not going to welcome the good news. There is good news, but first you've got to understand the bad news. You've got to confront the brutal facts. So we'll confront the brutal facts in verses 1 through 6, and then in 7 to 10, you embrace the remarkable, unbelievable, astonishing mercy of God. This is how you find balance in an insane world. So let's jump into it. In the first section... You've got two facts. First section is confront the brutal facts. I see two facts. The, the, the first one I would see is in verses 1 through 3. This is the first fact. And I would describe it this way. Death comes to all, and all are morally insane. How's that? Let's read the text. For I have taken all of this to heart... I have taken all of this to my heart and explain it that righteous men, wise men, and their deeds are in the hand of God. So there is a God over the heavens. There is a God over the sun. Uh, at certain, and I've mentioned this before, he'll go down these trails of what it is to live life under the sun as though God doesn't exist. Uh, Archer talked about this is living life with man as the, as the center. This is living life with uh, the earthly horizon, nothing above the horizon. Uh, we would call it secularism today. Secularism is that viewpoint that says this is the only world that there is. This is not the only world that there is. Jesus came from another world. He came into ours, which he created. He was born of a virgin. He lived a perfect life. He went to the cross as a sacrifice for our sins. He who knew no sin became sin. He took your sin, my sin, upon him on the cross. He paid for our sins in full with his, with his broken body and with his spilled blood. He died. He was buried. He rose on the third day. That's the gospel. You see? Now, he appeared to the apostles after he rose. You know about that. And then in Acts 1... He ascended into the heaven. And it was declared, he's going to come back the same way he went up. And at some point, he's coming back. But you see, he runs the whole world. 
and the whole world was in trouble, and we could not save ourselves, so he laid aside his privileges, and he came and did what was best for us instead of what was best for him, died a very painful death on our behalf. That's the gospel. And he is sovereign over the whole thing. He runs the whole thing from beginning to end. He's the Alpha and Omega. Okay. It's amazing to me, the Bible says that he was the Lamb of God before the foundations of the world. That means he was the Lamb. He was the sacrifice for your sin and my sin before man was ever, committed, uh, was ever created. Is that not kind of astonishing? He was the Lamb before Adam and Eve were created. He was the Lamb. He was the sacrifice for sin before sin entered into the world. Well, wait a minute. If I'm God... Wait a minute, let's, why would you do it that way? Why not just, I mean, it hasn't even kicked in yet. Why not just change the plan? I mean, does that make sense to you? Why go through all that? I don't know. But I know this, his ways are not our ways. You'll never figure that out as long as you live, and neither will I. His ways are not our ways, and his thoughts are not our thoughts, Isaiah 55 eight. He did it that way because it was the best way. And it was the best way to bring glory to himself. Okay. For I've taken all this to heart and explained that righteous men, wise men, and their deeds are all in the hand of God. Now watch this. Man does not know whether it will be love or hatred. Anything awaits him. In other words, you look back, I mean, you're here tonight, you look back over your life, and you can see what's occurred in your life. But as you're here tonight, you look ahead. You don't know what's ahead. You don't know what's coming. You don't know what's going to happen. I read this week of a gentleman who was going to go on a hunting trip with two friends, and at the last minute he had to cancel because of business obligations, and he was just really sorry, but he couldn't go, and his two friends took off, and they were killed in the plane crash. He, he was obviously very, very, I mean, sad, but very, very thankful. Had no idea a week later when he got on a plane on a business trip that he was going to crash and die. And you just don't know. We think we know, but we don't know. Michael Eaton, um, in his excellent commentary on Ecclesiastes, talks about this, verse 1. He says, because you see... You have that phrase, man does not know whether it will be love or hatred, anything awaits him. Does this mean that, that whether God will love me or hate me? He explains it this way. More likely the point is that the treatment that the righteous will receive is unknown. Who can tell what the future will bring? Righteousness and wisdom have no built-in guarantees of an easy life. If you look at the context, he's talking about believers in verse 1. For I've taken all this to heart and explained that the righteous men, wise men, and their deeds are in the hand of God. And, and, and that's true. But you see, even those of us who know Christ, we can look back and see his work, but we can't see ahead. Um, as believers, we have, give, we have been given through Christ our Lord, we have been given through Christ the guarantee of eternal life, but we have not been given the guarantee of an easy life. That's important to understand as a Christian. Jesus said, in the world you'll have tribulation. Uh, Acts 14, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. 
Not some, not few, many. That's why you've got many. Philippians 1.29, it's been granted to you, it's been gifted to you, not only to believe in Christ, ah, but to suffer for his sake. You know as well as I do that in your future, which is all under the hand of God, there will be some suffering, there will be some adversity, there will be some stuff you haven't had to deal with yet. You, you know that. That's life. But it's all under the hand of God. And we saw in Ecclesiastes 7, prosperity is a tool in the hands of God and so is adversity. But we don't know what's coming. We're going to get both. Let's move on. Verse 2 and 3. It is the same for all, whether you're a righteous man who follows Christ, and you say, well, I don't see Christ mentioned here. In the Old Testament, they looked ahead to the coming Messiah. They looked ahead. They knew he was coming. Job said, I know that my Redeemer lives. He knew it. Jesus hadn't come yet, but he knew he was coming. Old Testament believers looked ahead to the cross of Jesus Christ. New Testament believers and those of us after the cross, after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, we look back to the cross. All of history revolves around the cross of Jesus Christ. They look forward to his coming. We look back to the fact that he came and did the work for us and that he's coming again. Now let's read uh, verse 2. In verse 2 he says this, It is the same for all, the righteous man or... The wicked man, who's not interested in God. And then he's going to contrast them. There is one fate for the righteous and the wicked, for the good, for the clean and the unclean, for the man who offers a sacrifice and for the one who does not sacrifice. As the good man is, so is the sinner. As the swearer is, so is the one who is afraid to swear. Now watch this. What's he talking about? What do you mean the same thing? This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that there is one fate for all men. Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. Afterwards, they go to the dead. What he's trying to say here is you're going to die. Basically, fact one is death comes to all, and all are morally insane. Um, But because we're morally insane, we don't think we're going to die. I mean, we know we are, but we really don't. We think we can beat it. Um, I, I've shown you this before, quotes from some of the great Puritan pastors of several hundred years ago, the Puritan Golden Treasury. There's a section, great quotes of those pastors about death. Thomas Adams said this, all men are like actors on a stage. Some have one part and some another, but death is still busy among us. Here drops one of the players. We bury him in sorrow. And to our scene again, back to our scene, back to the act. Oh, and then falls another. Yes, all. And then one after another till death be left upon the stage. Death is that damp which puts out all the dim lights of vanity. Yet man is easier to believe that all the world shall die than to suspect himself. Somehow we think there's a way to beat death. Uh, I read about a bumper sticker that's around. I haven't seen it, but I read about it. 
uh, work out, eat well, and get ready to die. I kind of like that. I think uh, uh, that's Ecclesiastes. Work out, eat right, and get ready to die. Because you can't work out, you can't outwork out death. You can't organic food death. You can't whole foods death. You can't supplement. You can't B12 death. You can't do it. Nehemiah Rogers said this, there is none so old but thinks he may live one year longer. And though in a general way he say all must die, yet in the false numbering of his own particular days, he thinks he will live forever. That's brilliant. There is none so old but thinks he may live one year longer. But, hey, listen, you don't know you have a year. I don't know I have a year. It is appointed for a man once to die, Hebrews 9. And then comes judgment. This is what you call confronting the brutal facts. I mentioned to you guys over the summer, we moved my mom from California, and, uh, and she's been with us now a number of months, and it's been great. And uh, one of the benefits of having my mom with us is that she introduced me, and I mentioned this last week, to Shark Tank. I didn't even know what Shark Tank was. Uh, I thought it was something at the Monterey, Monterey Aquarium, uh, but uh, it's a TV show. And she told me, it's one of my favorite shows. I actually... I, I, I would record it and watch it. And these people, I said, well, what is it? You know, they, these guys have business plans, and they come in. And, so we watched it one night, and I kind of got hooked. So, uh, yeah. Uh, so it, it's kind of fun for me. It's a nice escape. It's kind of fun. It's kind of fascinating. There's this guy named Mr. Wonderful. <laughs> and he sits in the middle chair. He's really kind of a hard guy. And he's, uh, the thing about Mr. Wonderful is, you don't get the sense he's a Christian. You get the sense he has another God. And he loves this God. He worships this God. Everything he does, every decision he makes is in light of his God. And his God is money. And he'll, say, he'll tell them out straight out. No, no, no. It all comes down to money. A little family came out the other night. They brought their kids, and they had a little family business, and it was real kind of cute. And then at a certain point, he said to the mom and dad, this is probably when your kids need to leave. Yeah. <laughs> and they, they'd watch the show. And so they sent the kids out. And then he said, okay, this is all cute and well and good, but all that matters is money. Not family, not relationships, not kids. Bottom line is money. This is reality. And you know, he's wrong. What's reality is that he's going to die. And when he dies, he can't take his God with him. Now that's reality. So, the other night, two ladies come out. And they said, hello, sharks. We want $100,000 in return for a 10% equity in our business. And they had this little box, and they had a nice little name on it. But, and, they, and, and basically what it was, one of the ladies, her husband had died several years ago. 
uh, it was a shock. It was, you know, unforeseen um, with the grief and all. Had no idea. Had to come up with funeral arrangements and all of this. And in the state of grief, wasn't thinking clearly and didn't know what his wishes were. Here is our kit to help you plan your own funeral. And with this kit, you can clearly delineate your wishes. There is uh, 18 questions that you fill out. You think about your death, you think about your demise, and you think about the details of your, and, and it was interesting to watch these sharks. And they started hitting them with close-ups. Uh, Mr. Wonderful didn't look wonderful. <laughs> Mr. Wonderful wouldn't even look at him. He's got, he's got his hands down and he's kind of doing this. Um, one of the other guys is rolling his eyes. Oh, boy. Uh, it was interesting to watch him. And I'm telling you, and I'm telling you, those two ladies were dead in the water. Because none of those sharks wanted to give that any thought. I mean, it was interesting to watch. I mean, those women had no chance of somebody giving them money to think about. It was the most distasteful, revolting, but it was a fact. You're going to die, and I'm going to die. Look, look at verse 3. This is an evil in all that is done unto the Son, that there is one fate for all men. Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil, and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. Uh, one, one commentator said, insanity here, watch this, is a delusional lack of understanding due to our sin nature. Let me say that again. It's a delusional lack of understanding due to our sin nature. Uh, we, we, we're sinners, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's 3.23 of Romans. 6.23 of Romans is, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So, we're sinners. We're delusional about our own hearts, about our own condition. Um, we enjoy what God has created because God is good to everyone. God's good to the just and the unjust. The rain comes on the just and the unjust. Uh, why is it that people who are wicked and in such rebellion to God, so many of them have such great uh, uh, riches and have such great uh, favor and have such, so many human comforts in this life, yet they don't give glory to God? That's delusional. Why, why, do we, why are we so concerned with the well-being of whales? Why are we so well-concerned with the well-being of dolphins and snail darters and minnows? But don't give glory or even acknowledge the one who created those. It's delusional. It's absolutely delusional. Romans 1 says they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Okay. Even after we're Christians, uh, we still have a sin nature. Even though we're in Christ and our sins have been forgiven in Christ, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creature, but we still deal with sin, don't we? Now, I haven't sinned in 12 years, but I know you guys, 
you guys struggle with sin. And I'm very proud of my record. I am a great Christian. Actually, I'm not. We're all sinners saved by grace. But you see, in this life, we still fight off sin. Now, Christ lived within us, and the Spirit of God lives within us, but we still have this sin nature. Now, the thing is, you don't want to feed your sin nature. You want to starve it. But we still deal with it, you see. Uh, so even after we come to know Christ, this insanity, if we're not careful, is still in us. And this is where you see Christian guys go insane sometimes. The guy's, you know, he's got a wife and four kids, and he's blessed by God, but he's kind of hacked off at his wife, and she keeps doing this and keeps doing this, and he doesn't feel like she really gets him or honors him or understands him. And, all, you know, he's just, been, you know, one day he's, he's had it, he's leaving. Really? I'm out of here. What do you mean you're out of here? I just can't take this anymore. You know Christ? Oh, yeah. I believe every word of the Bible. Okay. Well, here's a concept. Why don't you obey the Bible? There are grounds for, Jesus said there's to be no divorce among you except for fornication. Is there fornication? Well, no, 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 my wife, no. So you had no grounds. Well, you don't get it. No, I, I think actually I do. I think you don't get it. You think you got a right here to disobey God. You don't have a right. And why would you throw all this away? That's insane. Nobody's got a perfect marriage. Nobody. Most of marriage is hard. Most of marriage is difficult. Most of life is difficult. But, but what you do is you make a commitment, and you can't make the other person hold to their commitment. All you can do is handle your commitment. But you stay the course, and you ask God to help you, and you cry out to him, and you ask him to get, us, get you through this, and you, you ask, you, you, you go to him. You don't, you don't run. What's that going to achieve? What's that going to accomplish? That's insane. That's, and sometimes you've got to, we, we get insane, uh, you've got to stun somebody. You've got to shock somebody. I, I, I think it was John Piper who talked about a guy he met with for lunch one time, and this guy had, and his family had been in this church for a long time, and this guy had gotten involved with some gal at work and was about to walk out on his wife and four kids and move in with this gal, and, you know, and, and Piper's talking to the guy, and the guy's given all the rationalizations and excuses and all this, and, and John said to the guy, so tell me why you would want to do this and go to hell forever. And the guy said, hell? John, don't you believe in eternal security? And John said, yeah, you bet I do, for Christians. What makes you think you're a Christian? I mean, really. Here you are willfully disobeying God on something that couldn't be more clear. And you're saying that the Spirit of God is within you? It jolted the guy. It shocked him. I don't know what he did, but it, jo it jolted him. It shocked him. You see, Christians can get insane. There's eternal security for those who trust Christ, not just professing with their mouth, but in their heart. 
Romans 10 said, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart. A lot of people talk with their mouth, but he's not in their heart. You see. Yeah, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ who've been regenerated in their hearts, they're secure forever. But I'm going to tell you something. If, if you're messing around with sin like that, you better count on the fact, and you're a believer, he's going to discipline you severely. Severely. It's Hebrews 12. And it doesn't have to take place. You, you run away from the sin, you run to Christ, you repent. We all have to do this from time to time because we're insane. And we need the Word of God to give us wisdom. i got to move on. Fact two. We're still confronting the brutal facts. Fact two is in verses four through six, and here's the second fact in this first section. I'll go ahead and give you the fact, and then we'll read the text. The ability to evaluate and change your life ends at death. Now you say, well, that's pretty, I mean, I knew that before I walked in here. <laughs> yeah, but we tend to forget it. Let's read uh, verses 4 through 6. For whoever is joined, so he's just made the point, you're going to die. Everybody, believer, non-believer, everybody, you're going to die. Verse 4, for whoever is joined with all the living, there is hope. Surely a live dog is better than a dead lion. This needs a little commentary. Uh, lions, uh, we call them the king of beasts. And lions were uh, honored, and they were uh, oftentimes Richard the lion-hearted, you know. Uh, Jesus is the lion of Judah that shows great power. Great power. In C.S. Lewis's uh, stories, uh, the figure, the great lion, who stands for Jesus, Aslan, great lion. And there's one point where one of the little kids get, goes up next to Aslan. And, uh, and as he approaches, the lion gives out this Subtle, deep, subdued growl. And the little kid kind of backs away. And he's kind of afraid. But the adult said, uh, that little kid, is he good? Oh, he's good. And he's safe. But in essence, he's saying, you don't trifle with him. You see? Um, lions have great power. Jesus is coming back one day with great power. And he's going to judge this whole world. Um, you, you see, it's better, here's the point, it's better to be a live dog. And by the way, when they say it's better to be a live dog, they're not talking about a Yorkie. <laughs> you know, those little dogs, you see women get on the plane at the airport in their purses, these little, you know, these little miniature, um, he's not talking about that. 
in, in Solomon's day, dogs, I mean, uh, think, hy, think hyena. And a lot, they ran in packs. A lot of them were, had rabies. They would rip you from shredders. They, they, were, uh, they weren't honored. They were hated. They were destroyed. You'd kill them. But you see, uh, they had no honor. But you see, whoever is joined with, the, with all the living, watch this. If you're alive, there is hope. Uh, it's, it's better to be a live hyena than a dead lion. That's the point. He goes on and says this. For the living know they will die, but the dead do not know anything, nor do they longer have any reward, for their memory is forgotten. He is not making theological statements about what happens in the afterlife after we die. That's not his point here. He is simply talking about when death occurs, your run is over. When the clock runs out in the fourth quarter, there's no overtime for you. This is your one shot to get it right. That's what he's saying. The living know they will die, but the dead do not know anything, nor do they no longer have a reward for their memory is forgotten. Indeed, their love, their hate, and their zeal have already perished, and they will no longer have a share in all that is done under the sun. That's true. In, in other ways, in other, in, you know, isn't it interesting how, how we tend to come to Christ? We tend to come to Christ. See, we all start out. We, we talked earlier about self-deification. We are our own little gods. We have our own little plans. We have our own little dreams. I'm going to achieve this. I'm going to do this. My life is going to look like this and all this. And we don't need God, and we take off. See, here's the deal about being young. See, when you're young, you're probably also going to be stupid. It's just how life works. I was talking with a friend of mine this week, and we were talking. We've been friends almost 40 years. And, that, you know, we were just catching up. And we were talking about a situation, and he said, you know, I remember we had a conversation at my house, and I knew exactly what he was going to say. And I remember when you said, and I said, yeah. And I think, I, I mean, I don't know if I turned red, but I kind of felt red. I was kind of embarrassed by that. I was a young rookie pastor. And he said, I remember that, Steve. I said, oh, I remember it too. Thanks for bringing it up. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, well, you know, here's the deal. That's what you call young and stupid. That was just stupid. I mean, I'm ashamed of that now. I mean, it was just dumb. You don't say stuff like that. I mean, I was talking about something that I thought was going to happen in my future. That was stupid. How do I know? I said, yeah, I think this and this and this. James said, don't say this and this. And next year I'm going to such a city and I'm going to do this and make a profit, say if the Lord wills. I made that statement and I didn't say if the Lord wills. That was my problem as a young guy. I was always getting out ahead of the Lord and I was a Christian. That's one reason I went through that three-year depression. He had to sit me down. And I had to find out who the shepherd was and who was leading this show and who's out in front. And it's not me. <coughs> so what happens, we will hit the wall. Our plans will blow up. We'll wind up in a ditch. We've ruined our lives. We've ruined people we love. And usually it's only after we hit a wall going about 100 miles an hour that we call out to God for help. That's usually kind of how it happens. Um, 
I got an email yesterday from a, from a gentleman I'd never met, but um, it speaks to this point. And what is the point? You see, the point is this. While you're alive, you can still evaluate your life, and you can still change your life, and you can still change to the living God. You can still turn to Jesus Christ. It's never too late to call upon his name. It's never too late to ask him for forgiveness. It's never too late to ask for his mercy and to receive his mercy. It's never too late as long as you're breathing. But when you take your last breath, it's too late. So I'm, I'm reading these verses, I'm studying, I've been thinking about them for days, and I check email and I get this email from a gentleman named Rick Tippett. And uh, a, a pastor in uh, North Carolina, uh, I'll just read you a couple paragraphs. Uh, in August of 2013, I was given the opportunity to go into central prison here in Raleigh and begin a reformers unanimous program with a group of 12 Christian men, watch this, on death row. Some knew the Lord before their crime, and some came to him after their sentencing. Of 150 men on death row at central prison, I do believe these men are serious in their walk with God. And they had studied a Christian book together uh, by another gentleman in a book that I had done. And anyway, he was communicating, and you know, it was great to hear from him. He goes on and says, I began straightway prison ministry about two and a half years ago with a little fear and anxiety in my heart. I'd never been involved with any kind of prison ministry, so I walked through nine steel doors to a maximum security unit and concrete walls everywhere. I learned several lessons within the first six months. Now, here's why I'm reading this. These lessons are straight out of this passage in Ecclesiastes. Confront the brutal facts. Here's what he says. Lesson one. God was in this place. Uh, God was at work in this place long before I ever showed up. It is evident with men who love the scriptures and had a great hunger to find God's will for their lives, even on what they now call, watch this, life row. I love that. They were sentenced to death row. Ah, ah. <laughs> they heard the gospel. They met Jesus. They're on life row. They're confined, but whom the Son has set free is free indeed. Lesson two, it is sad that men will not give more of their time to read the Bible and pray to God until time is all that they have left. Talked with a young guy a while back, and uh, he introduced himself, and good to meet you, man. I imagine early 20s. I said, so in school, you're working? He goes, I just got out of prison. I said, really? He goes, Yeah. Yeah. I said, well, how are you doing? He said, I'm doing really well. He said, I really found the Lord in prison. And um, my grandpa helped me. Uh, I read through the Bible twice while I was in prison. And I read some Christian books. And uh, I'm not quite sure where I'm going, but I'm very, uh, well, I, I've got a lot of hope. I said, you should. 
That's great. Here's a young guy who screwed up. He evaluated his life. He's still alive. And he took the opportunity to change. That's what these guys have done. Lesson three, God's justice will make every wrong right one day. We started with 12 men and all but admitted to the crime for which they were in prison, except one. One has always maintained his innocence. 18 months into this ministry, the state of North Carolina reevaluated this man's case and determined with irrefutable DNA evidence that he was not guilty. Henry served right at 31 years for a crime that he did not commit. But today he is free and seeking to rebuild his life, doing God's will. It's an amazing story. I asked Henry before he was released, are you bitter about losing 30 years of your life? To which he smiled and replied, I have no reason to be bitter. When I came here, I was lost and on my way to hell. I got saved here. If I had not come here, I most likely would never have come to know the Lord. I'm really looking forward to heaven. Dad gum, that's good. Isn't it? You see. <laughs> hey, guys, you know what the first six verses of this passage is saying? Every man in the world is on death row. Every woman is on death row. We're all on death row. But as long as you're breathing, I don't care what you have done. I don't care what has happened. The mercy and grace and forgiveness of Jesus Christ is available. And when you call upon, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You run to him. You don't have to clean up and run to him. You run to him. He'll clean you up. He'll change you. And he'll put you on a path. Today is the day of salvation. Not next week, because you don't know if you'll be alive next week. Now, verses 7 through 10. Embrace the remarkable mercy. This is kind of bleak. This is bad news. We're all going to die. Yeah, we are. Well, watch this. Embrace the remarkable mercy. I see uh, four mercies that he... Um, that he points to in verses 7, 8, 9, and 10. Let me go ahead and give them to you. The first mercy is the mercy of contentment, verse 7. We'll go back and read the text in a minute. The next mercy is the mercy of comfort, which is in verse 8. The next mercy is in verse 9. It's the mercy of companionship. The next mercy is in verse 10. It is the mercy of work. We'll come back to those. Let's read verse 7. So, you're going to die. Everything is futile under the sun, but when you meet the God who is over the sun and created the sun, and you meet the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the primary agent of creation among the Trinity, Jesus spoke all things into existence. When you meet him and believe and confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that he's your savior. Everything changes. Now, now look at what happens when you receive his mercy. Verse 7, he says, and see, here's where you find, here's where you find 
balance in an insane world. And we have an insane world. Watch this. Go then, eat your bread in happiness, and drink your wine with a cheerful heart, for God has already approved your works. Now, what is he talking about? He's talking about the man who is living, he uses this phrase, and I can't spend too much time on this, throughout the book, he'll talk about, so fear God. The man who fears God knows that God is holy, knows that God is there, knows that he, the man is a sinner, but cast himself on the mercy and grace of Christ, receives forgiveness, now lives in dependence upon Christ. So this is a God-fearing man who is following the Lord Jesus Christ, who says, the Lord is my shepherd. I messed up, but Jesus is great. I'm following him. Okay? When, when you come to know Christ, and, and earlier in this book, he made the distinction that the gift of money does not come with the gift of being able to enjoy the money. The gift of prosperity does not always come with the joy, with, with the gift of being able to enjoy. A lot of people have money. A lot of people have stuff, but they can't enjoy it because it's just life under the sun. But you see, when you know the living God, even though things are insane, you can still have joy because go then, eat your cheeseburger in happiness. And drink your wine, if you drink wine. It, it, you know, if you drink Shabliss, drink it. It's a joke. I know it's Shablis. Uh, and some of you guys, well, I, I, you know, I don't drink. Okay, well, fine. Drunkenness is a sin. Some Christians drink alcohol, some don't. Even the guys who don't drink alcohol take NyQuil. <laughs> so you're not a complete teetotaler, are you? No. You'll drink a quart of that stuff if you got a head cold. All right. Go then, eat your bread and happy. Now, can you drink too much? Yeah. Can you eat too much? Can you be a glutton? Yeah. Well, don't do that. Everything in moderation. So, eat your bread in happiness. Happiness is a gift of God. Joy is a gift of God. We've already seen this in this text, in the book. Drink your wine with a cheerful heart. Why? Because things are insane, but God's running the show. My life is in his hands. There's not chaos. There is a plan. And there's a plan for me, and there's a plan for my kids. So as bad as things are, I can have joy and be thankful for the things he has given me in this life. Uh, you see, I can be content. Things have always been screwed up on this earth. For God has already approved your works. What does that mean? Well, it just means, it, what do you start, this is a precursor. You know what I tie this verse in with? Is Romans 8.1. There's, no, there's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. It's not that you've done good works to be saved. It's that you've trusted in Christ by faith alone, by grace alone. You've trusted in Christ alone. You've thrown yourself on the mercy of Christ, and you have been forgiven, and you've been adopted into the family, and nothing can separate you from the love of God, and you've been approved because you're adopted. That's what that means. And if you're in Christ, there's therefore now no condemnation of those who are in Christ Jesus. You've got God's approval. You don't have to earn it. You're forgiven. You're in the family. So enjoy life. Be content. Yeah, you know, the, the, there's always good and there's always bad. But be thankful. Thank God for what you've got. Secondly, 
That's a mercy. The next mercy is in verse 8. It's the gift of comfort. The mercy of comfort. Let your clothes be white all the time. What does that mean? Well, I'll tell you what it seems to me what it means. As I studied this week, uh, that's a hot climate most of the year. And when the sun's there, if you got a white robe, that's the best robe. It's, it's comforting. It'll protect your skin. Um, and what's this oil on the head? What's this? What is this? Well, oil comes down off the head. And what it does, it refreshes dry skins. It's just comfort. It's just comfort. It's just the basic comforts of life that God gives to us. And so often we look and see what other people have that we don't have, and we forget the comforts that we have. We're building a house right now, and you know what? It's got indoor plumbing. <laughs> I mean, that's, and I'm going to tell you something. You go to Haiti, and they'd be amazed by that. And we don't even think twice about it. I'm going to be able to set the temperature in my study at 67 degrees. Mary will set the temperature in the bedroom at 112. <laughs> and we can both live in comfort. That's a mercy of God, is it not? Okay. Verse 9, and that takes me to the next one, the mercy of companionship. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given to you under the sun. This is your reward in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. Now, I've said it before. We have guys here who are divorced who didn't want the divorce. We've changed laws. There's nothing you can do to stop a spouse from leaving. And that's happened to some of you guys. Uh, many of us in here are married. But marriages go through good times and bad times. Uh, we need God's perspective to help us be men who live with our wives in an understanding way. We, we, she's got her strengths and she's got her weaknesses. You've got your strengths, you've got your weaknesses. We've got to learn to live with each other. I'm told in Scripture in 1 Peter 3, 7 to live with her in an understanding way, not a misunderstanding way, as best I can to ask God to help me to understand her. And then make room for that. And not critique her all the time. And not get on her case all the time. Now, she's got her stuff, but I've got mine. She's got her responsibility, but see, I, I got to handle my stuff. Ephesians 5, I'm to love her as Christ loves the church. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So you know what that means? Jesus took the blows for the church. I'm to take the blows for my wife. And sometimes it means you take... Uh, misunderstanding from your wife. Sometimes it means you, sometimes it means you get crucified for your wife. As a husband, your job is to take care. It's not to take advantage. It's not to take over. It's not to take off. It's not to take. Your job is to take care. Work your stuff out. Ask Jesus to help you. Ask him for wisdom when you're stuck. Ask him. Ask him. He'll help you. He will help. There are guys in here that will tell you the stories of how they've been helped. Marriages that were dead and divorced and were resurrected and are back together. But two people have to want that. 
Verse 10 is the mercy of work. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it, all with, do it with all your might, for there is no activity or planning or knowledge of wisdom in Sheol where you are going. Sheol is that you're going to die. Uh, so much of our life is work. Uh, I, I, I would cross-reference this with Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, do your work heartily, not as unto men, but as unto Christ. It's the Lord Christ whom you serve. You should, wherever you work, you should be the best worker. Um, why? Because you're working to the glory of God. You're serving Christ. Sometimes we have difficult bosses who don't get us, in fact, who are against us. Sometimes we're in positions that we're overqualified for. It was a lateral move. You just took it because you needed the work. Don't ever forget that every job, that every task is preparation. God never wastes an assignment. Or you might be in your dream job. I don't know. But whatever you do, whatever you do, do your work heartily. Not as unto men, but as unto Christ. It's the Lord Christ whom you serve. So do your work do your work to the glory of God. If you're a prisoner, do your chores to the glory of God. I see Bill Kennedy sitting over here, and Bill was in prison for 17 years. And there was such joy that God put in his heart in unbelievably crushing circumstances that other men would ask him what was going on in his life. They couldn't figure this guy out how he did his work, how he interacted with other people. There was something different. That guy was light in a dark place. What do you do? Are you an architect? Draw those plans to the glory of God. Don't take shortcuts. Are you a car salesman? Be a man of integrity. Are you any kind of salesman? Don't tell them the check's in the mail. If it's not, don't overpromise. Tell them the truth. And if you can't deliver, call them and tell them you couldn't deliver. They'll appreciate it. Treat them the way you'd want to be treated. If you're a salesman, sell to the glory of God. If you're a physician, do your work to the glory of God. If you're a welder, make those welds to the glory of God. If you're an airline mechanic, please. <laughs> Do your work to the glory of God, because how we do our work matters. Does it not? And God's watching. Can't remember the verse reference, but here's what it says. The eyes of the Lord roam to and fro about the earth, looking for those whose hearts are fully his, that he may strongly support them. He's got you, man. So once again, Go eat a cheeseburger, watch some baseball, and thank Christ that you know him. So we thank you now, Father, for what Jesus has done in our lives. What a great Savior he is. We're grateful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.